Just a quick note that the financial and business information you're going to hear in this episode is for informational purposes only. It is not to be relied upon to make any lending or business decisions as it does not consider your individual circumstances. So the tourists love the fact that, well, it's so peaceful, which is, I guess, the obvious. They really like how dry it is. Not used to seeing that, I suppose, but they love that red earth, sea forever, dry as far as the eye can see. You know, there's nothing. Sam Maiden and I are cruising down 10 k's of dirt road, heading to her organic Dorper farm. Broken Hill is less than an hour away, but out here, it feels like we're on Mars. Lots of dirt, lots of rocks. There's rocks everywhere, and in summer when it's dry, they shine. So it can be quite a, a metallic <laughs> look about it. But then you see the nice little um, shrubs and things. And when we do get rain, which really surprises me, we do get wildflowers. So that's really nice to go hunting for. You know, I can't grow a flower in the garden bed with all my water. And then all of a sudden this beautiful yellow wildflower grows out of a rock up in the hills um, that had rain on it six weeks ago. You know, so you, it, it's really good that you see those little gems. When you think there's nothing, all of a sudden you look down and think, oh, wow, how good's that? Sam has a particular knack for finding little gems and opportunities that aren't immediately obvious. She and her husband run mainly sheep on their outback farm, but they've been able to grow their business by thinking outside the box, beyond their dorpers. From trapping feral goats, earmarked for culling, to bringing Hollywood to their doorstep. I'm Sam Loy, and you're listening to Propagate, a podcast devoted to young farmers and fishers. This season is for aspiring farmers who aren't inheriting a farm. We're exploring different pathways to ownership and chatting to farmers going their own way. I've always sort of dreamt of having my own place, and I thought I will give it a go, and it hasn't been easy, but... Just go with your gut and just go for it, I think, yeah. That's Sam's husband, Richard. So we're probably a little bit lucky is that my past life, uh, I was a financial advisor for 20 years and did actually own my own business in Broken Hill. That was my knowledge base. So Richard's knowledge base is sheep and country and landscape and water and um, all of those things, whereas my knowledge base is more finance and, and budgets and working out if something is a good investment for us. Sam and Richard played the long game to get their farm. Richard worked in the mines for many years, and Sam ran her business in Broken Hill to save up for their first property purchase. It was 50,000 acres of flat, scrubby red land. After a few years, they had an opportunity to purchase a neighbouring property. Today, they have about 100,000 acres in total. So we're organic Dorper sheep farmers. Because the country is so tough and so hard... Dorpers seem to rangeland graze and do well. Sometimes they do well on, to my eye, nothing at all. I do wonder um, some days what they are eating because when you're out in the hills and it's a 40-degree day and you can just feel the sun reflecting off of rocks, (laughs) dirt, and then a little fat sheep will wander past. So I think our country is probably ideal for that breed of sheep. 
It wasn't just saving up that enabled Sam and Richard to buy their first farm. They had committed to a long-term strategy, one that relied on purchasing houses in town to build equity. I think it's important if you want to purchase a farm down the track, you need to start early and it seems as though that is even more important because prices are still holding of land and they're still increasing. So if it's something that you want to do, you need your plan in place and you need to start as soon as you physically possibly can. About 25 years ago, Sam and Richard started sniffing around for their first home in town. One day, Richard drove past a little house with a cardboard sign hanging off the front fence. Uh, It just said house for sale. It had a little phone number on the cardboard. It didn't look too bad, a little bit untidy. I thought, I'll just go and ask them, see what they want for it. And the old lady came to the front door and she said, look, 25,000. I said, yeah, no worries. So we bought it for 25. Um, We give it a coat of paint, got the garden going. We had it for about five years. Then we sold it for 75,000. And that's how we got our next stepping stone to go to the next house. And sort of just went like that. We brought another one, done it up, sold out for a bit of profit, then went to a bigger house. The property did two things. It gave us a roof over our head, but also we bought at the lower end of the market and did the little bit of work that we needed to do ourselves um, to then be able to upgrade it to, to make a profit. So you can start small, and we were proud of that as well. So you've got to be proud of what you've done along the way. For Sam and Richard, working their way up the property ladder was essential to them securing a loan for their first farm. I checked in with Brad Sewell, who specialises in giving advice to agricultural producers, particularly around their finances. Things like purchasing property, liaising with banks, all those key elements of running a business. He says that leveraging equity on a house you already own is a common stepping stone towards a loan for a farm. The two main forms of purchasing a farm or the two contributing factors are cash and other property and it's an important point because as a young person you may not have been able to afford to buy a farm for a million dollars but you may have been able to buy a house in town for three hundred thousand dollars. Let's say you're going to a bank to apply for a loan to buy a farm. Brad explains that a house you've bought can be offered as security to the bank. Security is the the mortgage Um, so banks always require property as security and so you can use that house as part of the security you offer a bank and the bank in return for getting a mortgage over your house and the farm can lend you a certain amount of money. Once they secured their land, Sam and Richard were committed to building their farm into a successful business. And they knew in those early years it would make the most sense to keep their day jobs while they got on their feet. Don't be frightened to take off-farm work. If someone offers you work for a couple of days off-farm, if you've got time, take it, because it's extra money for you guys to do that. Uh, Even now, I take off-farm work. If someone rings up and they want work done, I can go over and do it. I do load of work, I do all that sort of stuff. But since the beginning, Sam and Richard have always looked out for ways to supplement and diversify the farm income. Farming's an interesting industry that you don't get a fortnightly sale. Well, some do. They're probably luckier than us. So the income deposits, for us, we probably get, in good times, three or four decent deposits a year when you sell. 
So you need to make that cash flow last or you need to look at other alternatives to top up the bank account, I suppose, in those periods. And if you think long and hard about things, there is usually a way. It might be some pie-in-the-sky idea that you have over a cup of coffee one morning and then you think, oh, well, hang on, maybe we should think about that a little bit further. In the early days of their farm, one such pie appeared in their sky. The area around Broken Hill had a problem with feral goats, which were negatively impacting the land and competing with livestock and native animals for food. So the state government was offering grants to people who were willing to help manage the goat population. So we went, got government money to do like goat control, which is fencing goat traps to control the goats. Um, And that was a really, really big help to us. The government grants provided an initial bit of financial cushioning for them. And trapping goats turned into a lucrative business of its own. People reckoned they were a pest, but they gave us a big leg up to where we are now, like on the money side of it. A good-sized goat at the moment will get you 150 or $60. And that's, like for us, it's really, really good money at the moment. And sort of, it's for, uh, another income for us. As the feral goat problem slowly got under control, Sam and Richard became more confident in their business. They'd been comfortable paying off their initial 50,000-acre property, but soon they felt ready to expand. The second property came about, Richard was talking to the neighbour, so it is actually our neighbouring property. And there was a discussion, I think, in an off-comment at some point a few years ago that Richard would have said cheekily over a beer, I'm sure, if you ever want to sell, let us know. And that sort of probably a few years later, all of a sudden the seed was planted and they'd made the decision that they were going to sell. And so they came to us and said, this is what we're thinking of doing. Sam Marwood from Cultivate Farms is a bit of an expert in these matters. Starting talks with retiring farmers who might be looking to sell or hand over ownership is his specialty. And Sam Marwood says that these conversations, like the one that Richard had with his neighbour, can be daunting. But with the right strategy going in, the payoff can be huge. How you get that discussion to happen in the first place is big. It's a big, it's a big and confronting thing to do. And that's probably where there's a lot of art and creativity and to be able to get a conversation started. And we often say from an aspiring farmer point of view, Don't do this from a selfish mindset. You need to be doing it from a point of love, which might sound a bit full on, but it has to be from a, what is this retiring farmer? What might this retiring farmer think or want before they have a conversation with them? Because you can't just rock up to somebody and say, hey, I want your farm. Give it to me now. There's no way anything like that would happen. So we spend a lot of time giving all these tactics and giving advice to these aspiring farmers on, well, how do you build a relationships with somebody so that after the 10th time you're caught up with them and they might mention something about, you know, wanting to move on that you've built that trust and respect to be able to go, well, I've been thinking about owning a farm, but it's, oh, it's really hard to get the money. And oh, I'd love to know what you're thinking with your farm. Like I love, I'm so impressed with what you've done. And yeah, what are your visions for the land? You know, it's that almost that permission to ask and That is a real craft, and that's something that they just need to have a crack at. 
Sam and Richard in Broken Hill are a great example of the value of cultivating those relationships over time. It's rare to lock someone down on your first go, but Sam Marwood says to be persistent. We say to farmers, think about talking to retiring farmers like it's a river and you're going to dip in and try and get one. And you might, most of the time, think, I've only got one farm retiring farmer. This is the only retiring farmer I'll ever get. I can't stuff this up. I can't stuff this up. And they stuff it up because they're, they're not good at trying to understand what the other farmer wants. But we're saying, think about it as the first of 50 retiring farmers you're going to talk to. Uh, and if you're just thinking about one farmer, it's going to be really tough and you're going to be pretty lucky to be able to convince one farmer having one crack to say get a vendor finance deal out of that farmer but if you're constantly out there thinking about this and meeting with the retiring farmers volunteering on farmers properties to help out writing letters in letter boxes and reaching out and just having a discussion meeting them at the tennis club building relationships until one day you start to realize oh this this farmer i know and i can they they like me and i like them and maybe i can start talking to them about leasing their land or telling them about my aspirations so to us in summary the technical arrangements of getting an ownership transition to happen relatively straightforward and that's what accountants and lawyers are paid for Getting the opportunity to have that discussion in the first place is the it, that's the hard bit, and that takes years, and that's what persistence is about. A lot of the decisions we've made have actually been Richard having those quiet discussions on the back of a ute or buy a little sign on a first house, um, and then you know we have the discussion together of okay what's happening what do we think and and then we go from there so probably we're both quite pleased that that opportunity came up when it did. A bigger property meant a bigger mortgage, and the financial pressure was on to keep the business ticking over. It was time to build in more income streams to hold up those dorpers. So the idea was formed to establish a tourism offering. One of their farms, Mount Gipps, had a station stay business that had closed down a couple of years prior to the previous owners selling. And the infrastructure was pretty much there. So we sort of thought, well, that's going to be a bit of a given to get that going again. So we spent a little bit of time just updating it. Um, Not too much had to be done to get that open as soon as we could. So, of course, everything that you do usually has a challenge. So we did open it in about February 2020. And then, of course, by March 2020, the country had sort of shut down over a national, well, an international pandemic, I guess. So that was tricky that we'd spent a lot of time and a decent amount of money getting it ready. And then we thought, oh, well, okay, that didn't quite pan out as expected. So you have to then pivot to something else. And then we got wind of some roadworks that were going on the road. So then we thought, okay, well, there'll be some essential travellers in our neighbourhood. So we discussed some accommodation requirements for them. So that was sort of that on the foot pivoting, okay, well, that didn't work. Is there anything else that we can do in such a a terrible time? So we had some essential workers. They stayed on the farm. So that was great. That sort of managed to probably recoup some of the expenses that we'd spent. And that got us through to pretty much when travel could open again. And as soon as we opened, we booked out for most of the season last year. And what really hit home for me was 
I forget how lucky we are to live where we are. It was a timely reminder for Sam because she knew that tourists weren't the only ones who loved this land. The film industry is renowned for coming to Broken Hill. Uh, our landscape, we know, we've known for as long as I've lived in Broken Hill that there's always a film crew in town doing something. We'd made some contacts with some of the local people in the industry and they said, look, um, if you're within about 50 kilometres from a major town, so Broken Hill in our case, it's worth chasing because that's about sort of the limit that a lot of film crews will travel because then obviously it gets too expensive if they're travelling too far. So we pretty much opened the place up to anyone that wants to come and have a look. So we would get easily somebody a week that would bob up on the door. Uh, it might be an ad, it might be a film. You don't get them all, but it's a matter of making those contacts. So, you know, we're probably, we spent last year just, it was a bit like being a tour guide. It was just, yes, these are the hills, this is the dirt, this is... <laughs> but then all of a sudden the momentum happened. So it's when you've got somebody on the place, we try and make the connections with the set people, the costume department, the um, it's not just the producer, it's, it's the whole team that all of a sudden they will remember you in a, a few years or a few months' time. And it's another source of income. By bringing in these additional income streams, Sam and Richard have been able to slowly phase out much of their off-farm work. Now they can focus on their land. Richard finished work in about 2014, so we'd had the first property for two years. I guess we'd spent two years getting the infrastructure to a point where we could probably then actively get it to support itself. That's when we realised that his supplementary income we probably didn't need to rely on as much as we did um, previously. I finished in 2019... The farm still doesn't support us 100% financially, and I think that's important. We do still have some outside income, and that supports the family budget, I suppose. So it's very important to us to understand two things. What does the family private budget need? What, what do we need to buy the groceries? And then what's the budget of the farm? So we've probably always run them separately and that we're not that reliant on that farm income. And we couldn't be at the moment because the second property was bought at a good price for the seller, probably not for the owner. So we do have a significant liability there that all of the income really that the farm makes from sheep just manages that. For the last couple of years, drought has been a challenge for the Dorper farm. This is where forward-thinking financial planning has been a security for them. And because of the drought, we're only in a position to pay just the interest portion only. So none of the capital will get paid over the next few years. And that was very clear to us. We put together the worst possible scenario when we did the cash flow for Mount Gibbs. And lucky we did because we're probably still sitting in the worst possible scenario. Everyone thought the drought would break. It still hasn't. So I guess for us, things are going to plan. <laughs> so every decision that we make, we cost out. And it might be a cost out in dollars or time. So let's say, for example, 
we buy some lambs and we want to fatten them up and try and trade them over. So we will say, right, what's the plan? So this is usually Dick's decision. So I'll say, what's the plan? And I'll, I'll feed them for three months. And we'll, if we need to supplementary feed, which we don't usually, but if we did, we'd say, and we'll spend X amount. So as soon as those two points happen, we then have another discussion, say, well, okay, three months is up, or you've spent X amount of dollars. And it's pretty much a given. Well, that's what we said we'd do. So that triggers us to sell or, or do whatever we said we would do at the, the previous discussion. In the face of these ups and downs, Sam can't stress enough the value of educating yourself to keep skills current and learn from peers in the industry. Richard and I always try and do something a year. So at the minute we're doing a bit of a mentoring program and you don't enjoy all of it. But we always, if we we go away for the day, we say, well, if we can just bring back that one thing and use that one thing, well, it's been a valuable day. So don't ever be frightened to, oh, well, I'll look stupid if I went to that or if I asked that question. We go, we don't care, we look silly. (laughs) It's all about getting that extra piece of information. and, And it's usually the bit of information that you think is what is really not going to interest you at all is the bit that you find the most valuable. That always surprises me. It's just that one, and it might even be just that conversation with some old fella that's been farming for 60 years over a cup of coffee at the front, and he might just say that one thing and you think, on the way in the car on the way home, well, how about that? How good's that? And have a strategy. Have a strategy going in, but more importantly, have an exit strategy going out. So we have an exit strategy. If it does not rain, within two years, we'll have to pull the first lifeboat. And then if it doesn't rain four years after that, we'll have to do the second. We've always had that strategy is, okay, we know how to get in, we better know how to get out. At some point, we would like to retire and retire comfortably. Now, whether or not I joke that it'll be a nice little grassy pasture somewhere and Richard can play with his sheep in the green grass and if he can find them because the grass is so high and and I might go and sip on some lattes in some small town somewhere whether or not that comes to fruition who knows you know we weren't lucky enough to have anybody get us on our feet and we're proud of that we're happy that we've done it ourselves in the next episode of propagate is it a hobby farm do you come from a farming background and is your husband or partner a farmer? And so when you turn around and go, it's 8,000 acres, no farming background, and I'm single, it just, it became an uphill battle. Every episode of Season 3 is already available right now. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Propagate is brought to you by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Young Farmer Business Program. Thanks for listening.